This week's episode is brought to you by the book, More Seen, Unseen Disneyland, an unofficial, unauthorized look at what you see at Disneyland but never really see by Russell D. Flores. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And guess what, guys? A couple episodes back, we were asking for you guys to send us your phone numbers. Not for anything nefarious or anything. Oh, I thought... No, 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 no. George, be quiet. Oh, be quiet. No, no, no. We wanted your phone numbers so we can call you for the brand new and improved impromptu random cadet cell phone Disney theme park trivia segment that we're doing. So wow. instead of calling the theme parks because, you know, we can't call the theme parks anymore, we're just going to call you guys at home so you can win some awesome prizes. <laughs> so we've already done a few, but, you know, we're just waiting on the new theme song. But we'd, we'd love to call some of you guys in the comfort of your own home. So if you're available Tuesday evenings around 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific time, if you're around, send us an email at communicoweekly at gmail.com with your name and your phone number. And who knows, maybe we'll call you in the next couple of weeks. It's time for Disney History. In episode 182, we start to look at one of the greatest animated Disney films of all time, Fantasia. And we looked at the evolution of the film, and how it originally started as just a short film, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and then turned into this fantastic feature length. And when we left off the segment, uh, we decided that the final section, Night on Bald Mountain, uh, it was about to give the animators a lot of problems. So, while it's in its third year of production, many at the Disney Studios believed that they were in the home stretch of Fantasia. Fantasound was perfected, and most of the animation for the film was complete. Just the Ave Maria section was left to finish, so everyone thought the worst was over. You know, but it wasn't long before the Ave Maria section almost brought the entire production to a screeching halt and crashed the actual premiere of the film. So, during the procession of the pilgrims in the finale, the filmed animated, animated scenes seemed to jitter a little bit when played back. The painted cells were being filmed closely together, and any slight change in the camera speed would cause them to jump around, creating the really bizarre jittery motion. In the, the retakes, you know, those are in, inevitable in any film. Of course, there are no retakes in podcasting. No, Never. not at all. Never. Take two. Take two. <laughs> retakes aren't, no. Uh, so. <laughs> But, but okay, Walt himself was unsure if they would be able to solve the jittery problem in time. The solution was that the camera needed to move smoothly and slowly in one long, continuous shot in order to avoid the jitter. The problem was that ugh, no such camera existed. So in order to fix this, they took one of the uh, famous multiplane cameras and designed a horizontal version of it. And instead of providing depth to a scene, it would now be placed on a carriage and rolled along on a track, filming the entire time. So theoretically, it would allow the camera to glide through the forest gracefully, and it was quickly put to work as the last scene was needed, you know, pretty much ASAP. 
So the, the first time they tried to film the scene, it lasted for six days and nights. And, and while the jitter was gone, somebody had used the wrong lens. Womp womp. Yeah, so basically all that footage was completely worthless. The lens captured the scene just fine, but also managed to capture the camera's track and some of the cameramen. Hey, behind the scenes look at Fantasia right on the screen. <laughs> so off to take two, which didn't really fare that much better. This time, uh, fortunately, it wasn't a human error, but something else entirely. Ghosts? It Probably ghosts. It's usually ghosts. Oh. And when it's okay. not ghosts, on the third day of shooting, it was an earthquake. So an earthquake actually shook the studios. And the camera equipment, fortunately, was not broken, but the quake had moved the stands holding the cells, so there was no way to tell if the film animation was ruined or not. So with just days away from the premiere and a final chance to get it right, they did it a third time. This time thankfully worked. The completed footage was flown to New York City, I hope first class, where Fantasia was to premiere and arrived with just four hours to spare. That's pretty nerve-wracking. Yeah, I can imagine. Pretty, pretty nerve-wracking. So, having been finished literally in the nick of time, Fantasia premiered on November 13th, 1940. And wanting to create some movie magic again, the premiere was held at the Colony Theater where Mickey Mouse debuted in 1928. The film itself was pretty groundbreaking and lived up to everything that Walt dreamed it to be. You know, creatively and technically, it was a marvel. But there was only one problem. The public's response to the film. Yeah, silly public. It didn't take long for criticism to start flowing. From musical corners, uh, classical, musical, uh, classical music purists believe in letting the mind's eye create its own picture while listening. Now, why should Walt decide what people see when they're being moved by the music? But this was to be expected by Walt, so he didn't mind that so much. The problem was, one of the more critical voices was Igor Stravinsky, who composed uh, Rite of Spring, which was in the film. And though he was invited to the studio during the course of the production, and even gave Walt a signed photograph that said he was one of his greatest admirers, he kind of voiced his opinion on the film loudly upon its release. And he called the sequence with his work imbecility, I don't even know that's a word, but imbecility, <laughs> and claimed to have stormed out of the theater when it was shown. So his harsh words really did not help the film find its way into the hearts of the viewing public. Yeah, so during production, Disney tried to skirt some of the potential issues that arose and make them friendlier for the general public. There was nudity in Night at Bald Mountain that he was worried about and the evolution sequence of Ride of Spring. However, the strongest criticism came from the Pastoral Symphony, which the studio actually felt was safe from any criticism. So in the middle of that sequence, there is a centaurette named Sunflower who not maliciously, but seemed to resemble the stereotypical portrayal of an African, excuse me, an African American servant, um, and it was, you know, quite frankly, kind of careless on the studio's part, but it wasn't malicious in the slightest, you know. But however, due to the strong criticism in future versions of the film, those scenes are severely cropped to remove the offending centaur, and you can't, you can't even see Sunflower anymore. Wow. So all these problems aside. The public never really took to the film. Though it was incredible, it limped its way through the box office and was initially deemed a failure. During the Academy Awards of 1942, however, Walt received an honorary award for Fantasia for the studio's outstanding contribution to the advancement of the use of sound in motion pictures through the production of Fantasia. 
That'd have to be a massive plaque on that. That really, that would have to be really long just to get it all yeah. in one line. Wow. Yeah, Walt offered a few words of gratitude uh, before he actually started to cry when he got the award. And, of course, it's pretty typical for people to win Academy Awards and to shed a few tears, but these were not really tears of happiness. Walt was basically owning up to Fantasia's failure. Failure. Um, he told the audience, We all make mistakes. Fantasia was an honest one. And that was kind of a big deal for Walt. And even though most critics liked it, aside from the music ones, the fact that it never really entertained the public and was, in his eyes, a failure because of it, that really weighed heavily on him. So, Stokowski and his team also received an Honorary Academy Award, quote, for the unique achievement in the creation of a new form of visualized music in Walt Disney Productions' Fantasia, thereby widening the scope of the motion picture as entertainment and as an art form, end quote. <laughs> Another so long. long one. Yeah, not even these two Oscars could alleviate Walt's disappointment and his perception that he had let down his viewing audience. You know, after all, it was a failure at the box office. Another reason for this was the fact that it was a limited release overseas because the market was closed due to World War II, and it seemed like the film really would never recover. Walt's creative masterpiece kind of struggled at the box office, but as we know today, it eventually became one of the magnificent crown jewels in Disney's uh, stable of films. And even though the film was re-released in 1956, it didn't turn a profit until 1969, almost 30 years after its initial release and three years after Walt's death. Though it was deemed a failure back then, it's now considered to be one of the finest Disney films. Later in his career, after the initial disappointment, Walt's embarrassment of the film was replaced by clarity. Uh, he quote, uh, uh, quoted, I don't regret making it, he said. It's what we should have been doing with our medium, end quote. Walt had planned on Fantasia being successful right out of the gate and wanted to have it on a continual release with segments being replaced by new ones, so audiences would never see the same film twice. But obviously, due to the box office failure, the idea was abandoned. But following Walt's death in 19, uh, 1966, his nephew, Roy E. Disney, thought of an update for Fantasia, and in 1974, uh, he pitched the idea to uh, Disney chairman Michael Eisner 10 years later after that. And a project for the sequel, titled... Music again? I don't know. How do you Musicana. say that? Musicana. Musicana. There we go. Yeah. I don't know words. Um, <laughs> so Musicana came about in the late 1970s, and it explored the world's cultures through their musical compositions, but the idea was shelved in the early 1980s. The film you did spawn a sequel, however, in Fantasia 2000. It almost continued the idea of using some of the original film segments along with some new ones, uh, Dance of the Hours, and the Nutcracker Suite were to be used, but eventually the Sorcerer's Apprentice was the only one of the original segments to actually be included. The original Fantasia, however, is a masterpiece, and I admit, growing up, I didn't love it. But watching it now, and even its sequel, I mean, I'm blown away by it. I mean, the animation, especially for its time, is incredible and unparalleled, and it's every bit the masterpiece that Walt wanted it to be, in my opinion. That's just me, though. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic film, great animation, and if you check out the book The Lost Notebooks of Herman's Gothasis, recently released by the Walt Disney Family Museum, you get a lot of behind the scenes of how he, well, the special effects part created a lot of this, and it's really a fascinating look at the making of the film. Um, but we want to know what you guys think about Fantasia, how much you love it, or do you not like it, or do you save it for rainy days? Call us on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. 
He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's book of the week. This week's book is More Eaten and Uneaten Bacon at Disneyland by Russell Flores. It's an unofficial, unauthorized look at all the different bacon at Disneyland. Why are you laughing? I wish this was a scratch and sniff review. <laughs> no, seriously, we're picking on our good friend Russell because um, he has a bacon problem. And he'll be the first to admit he has a bacon problem. That's the first step. But that's the first step. But no, seriously, um, Russ has just released More Seen, Unseen Disneyland. And it's not quite like a second edition. It's more like a second volume. Yeah. I think. Because he had released um, Seen, Unseen Disneyland a while ago. And we had, re- well, yeah, we had reviewed it way back in episode 133. Which, oh, that was 50 episodes ago. It was 50 episodes ago. Wow, exactly. It's, like it's 50 anniversary. So, so that means Russ has got to write another book in another 50 episodes? You got time, buddy. Hurry up. Okay. Okay. Well, anyways. So, you know, the first, the first book, it, it was something I really enjoyed. And to me, it always stood out for two reasons. The first Seen Unseen Disneyland book. Russell included tons of photos, and he has an obvious dedication to to getting the facts straight. Unlike us. Unlike, what? no, we do. We're just oh, sh- just like it. us. So, so as I mentioned, this is sort of the second volume because it's almost all completely different, which is good. And, you know, the book as it's in itself and Russell skill as an author has improved, which is great. I got to pick on Russell. because you know, <laughs> But, you know, he does offer a lot more for the Disneyland fan. In and of itself. And I'm real serious about this review. Russ is a great guy. We're good friends. He poured his heart and soul into this book. And it really is great for Disneyland fans. But let's move on a little bit more. So much like the first book in the series, Russ is really looking at all the little details that makes Disneyland so great. It's not really like a five-legged goat guide to Disneyland, although some people might see it that way. But he, he just he covers more than just the tributes and the hidden stories. In, in, in a lot of the cases, Russ actually includes something in the book simply because he likes it or it caught his attention and he wants to share it. Um, as I mentioned earlier at the top, Russ is pretty darn tenacious when it comes to researching or verifying a fact. I don't know how many times I got Facebook messages from him going, do you know what this is? Do you have this in one of your books? And I was happy to help him out if I could. Um, you know, Russ isn't the type of author to simply include something because he saw it online somewhere. He really wants to get to the bottom. You know, that means a lot to me as a researcher, as a Disney historian, and as a librarian. It's very important. Uh, and in a few cases, if Russ really wasn't able to verify the fact, he'll include what he's heard and where he heard it, like multiple rumors. One in particular, he lists three different rumors for something. And I was, I was glad to see that. Uh, he's sort of covering his bases. Uh, he's also done a really great job of documenting all of his resources, which include books, websites, and podcasts, including this one. So, hey, got to give him a shout out for that. We're official. Yay. Hooray, research material. And officious. Um, the book has a ton of photos in it covering so many different aspects of Disneyland that it's actually, I thought it was pretty incredible to see the number of photos. He covers a lot of different things that some people might consider mundane, but I'm really glad that he documented them with photos and in some cases text. 
it's sort of like the first book that he wrote. It's going to be something that people are going to cherish in a few years simply because of the level of detail that Russ has provided. You know, he set out to document the park and prove that Disney and the, the Imagineers were, were right in creating the level of detail that they did, that it was important. Uh, you know, that spending the time and the money is worth it because people can sense the difference between a Disney park and most every other park in the world. So the, the volume has 14 different sections, and it takes a broad look at the park based on subjects. You know, he covers urban legends, just looking at different signs, looking at tributes found throughout the park, landscaping, and some others. But like the first volume, it's a great way to tour the park in a book without going land by land. And it's something you can just sit down, flip open, look at any page, and you're going to find something. And this, I think, is really a book that any level of Disney nerd is going to enjoy. Even hardcore Disneyland fans are going to find some things they didn't know or even some things that make them go, hmm, or something like that. Or so, some other noise along those lines. Or some like, other ah, noise. Or ah, hmm, something hmm, like that. Or what was Russ thinking? Exactly, exactly. Oh, wait, along those same that. lines, this is where <laughs> I would usually uh, chime in and say a couple of things about the book as well, but I feel like I can't. I can't give a really unbiased review of it because I actually edited the book for Russ. Yeah. So I, I watched it grow from all these different iterations uh, over the last couple of months. But I can say that I did learn a thing or two and I did enjoy the book overall. So take that as you will. I'm trying to be <laughs> as unbiased as possible, but I think it's a good book. Yeah, and when you when you do purchase your copy of the book, um, make sure you flip it over to the back to look at the blurbs because there's a pretty darn fantastic blurb at the very bottom next to the ISBN which shows its importance. That's true. That's very true. ISBNs are very important. Yes, they are. The international standard book number. Exactly. Anyway, this week's book, which um, I know I really enjoyed, and I know Russ enjoyed it as well, so buy it for Russ because he needs more bacon. Lots more bacon. This week's book is More Seen Unseen Disneyland by Russell Flores. This is Leo. I recently had the opportunity to see inside out the newest Pixar film. Just so you know, am I doing any spoilers? I guess not, so let's go on. So the movie Inside Out was about the emotions in Riley's head and some of them are joy, anger, disgust, fear, and of course, sadness. You all know that it's a pretty funny movie, and my favorite character is Joy, and it's about Riley moving from Minnesota to San Francisco, and anger is pretty funny too. Um, when they go to a place that only serves one kind of pizza, and it's broccoli on pizza, he says, congratulations San Francisco, you've ruined pizza. I saw the movie twice, because I loved it so much and I saw it the second time in 3D and it was so awesome. That was my favorite time I saw it. It's so awesome in 3D, awesome in 3D. I hope they make an Inside Out too. I hope to see you all at T23 in just a few weeks. 
For Jeff Heinbuck and George Taylor, this is Leah. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Downtown Disney at Walt Disney World is going through a massive change at the moment into Disney Springs, which is a brand new shopping experience. And of course, with any new area opening up, we have brand new five-legged goats that we have to find. So across the street from Fulton's Crab House is a building that is not quite open yet to the general public. But above the doors to the building are uh, base relief carvings of people working on the docks at Disney Springs, which is kind of supposed to represent the, the past of the area. Now, in one of these carvings, in the background is a boat of, and it's none other than the Empress Lily. <sighs> I know. Hold wow. your surprise for a moment. Okay, okay. So the Empress Lily, uh, obviously named and Christian by, christened uh, by Walt Disney's widow, Lillian Disney, was home to four separate dining areas, uh, the very first character meal, and much, much more. So why is this important? Because in 1995, the Empress Lily closed and was reopened the next year as, you guessed it, Fulton's Crab House. So it's a nice little nod to the Empress Lily, a wonderful name that I miss dearly. Yeah, see, I thought Fulton's Crab House was a daycare center the first time I ran into it. Be because of all the kids? Well, I just figured that's where I sent my kids after a hot day at Epcot. That's a fair point. Because they know? were crabby? Yeah, by the time you hit Germany, they get angry and mad and... They I don't need to want go to learn about countries and history. <laughs> Although the ones they get to uh, Mitsukoshi, they're happy because then they can buy Pokemon. Oh, I thought you meant Saki. <laughs> no, that's for mommy and daddy. Fair enough. So, <laughs> okay, well, speaking of Saki. Man, we really got to work on our no. segues. Yeah, I would do the podcast on a segue. I would do If Segway wants to sponsor us, I will gladly that's, segue all over. So if anybody has a connection with Segway, Email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com and let us know. And something else you can do at communicorweekly at gmail.com is enter our year of a million or so limited at time cadets prize winner. Boom. Perfect See, there segue. there was a segue there. Yes. Nailed it. So as you guys may have been paying attention or may not have been paying attention, we've been giving away a prize every single week on Communicore Weekly. And uh, <laughs> we've been asking everybody to email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com with their name, address, and birthday, at least the day in the month, so we can mail out the prize. And this week's prize is a copy of the book, More Seen, Unseen Disneyland by Russell the Baconator Flores. And this week's winner is Sharon M from Portland, Oregon. Yay! Now we know we know that Russell is in Southern California, right? Yes. So Well, no, he's not in Southern California. He's in Northern California. Oh, he's in Northern California. Yes. Okay, good. But he comes out so, enough to be considered from yeah, Southern but, California. Yeah, but but if he mails bacon to Sharon in Portland, it that might won't come be fresh. as bad. It might be a lot fresher. It's true. That's very true. Wow. So so Sharon, we would love to see a picture of you on the Facebook page or tweet us at us or periscope at us, scope at us with you and the book and hopefully enjoying it heck yes and bacon at the same time and the bacon 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 okay well thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of communicore weekly please leave us a comment leave us a rating on itunes however you listen to the show let us know we'd love to hear from you yes and again email us at communicore at gmail.com to enter the contest send us photos tell us cool things or anything else 
Of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly and keep up with our daily antics. Yes, shenanigans. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Adam Nerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, you can always give us a call on the Communico Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And visit CommunicorWeekly.com. Click on the Store to check out some of our awesome stuff we're selling. Or just visit CommunicorWeekly.Spreadshirt.com and pick up some great t-shirts. And if you want your official cadet membership card or a CommuniCore Weekly sticker, send us a self-addressed stamped envelope to CommuniCore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. But you're not mailing out bacon, right? No bacon. I bet the post office frowns on that. Well, Unless you share If it. I share the bacon, it might be okay. Okay, well, you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly and find out how you can help support the show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show. Mancini.